It is a delight to be back, and I'm thankful that I had the invitation and the opportunity to come. We have uh, left our our church body in Indianapolis, and um, it's kind of a strange thing to do that when you're the pastor, Uh, and yet I am confident that David Abusara is taking good care of the family up there, and we consider ourselves as a church a part of this family, and so we look to you with love, and the people, even those who have never met any of you that are up there, look with love to this church because of the sacrifices that you have made in sending us to Indianapolis. And so thank you uh, for that work, and thank you also on the part of the people from our church up in Indianapolis. Please turn with me to Acts 13. I'm going to be reading a fairly long passage. It's an entire sermon preached by Paul, starting in verse 13. Now, Paul is the apostle to the Gentiles. That means non-Jews. So if you're not a Jew, you're a Gentile. Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles. And yet, in our text that we read this morning, he's actually preaching to Jews. And the reason is because everywhere, every time he went someplace new, what he would do is he would preach first to the people of God who had always been the people of God, that is, the Jews. And then, when they threw him out, then he would go about doing the work that God had sent him to do, which was to preach also to the Gentiles. So he goes to the people who are already in the church first. People who are already in the church. And it's important for us to recognize that he's preaching to people who are a part of the body of Christ already, or at least have been called to that and have been claiming that for many years. They knew about God, they knew about his promises, and they should be delighted with Paul's message. And he starts out by speaking to them of their history. He goes on this long history lesson in the first part of the sermon. And this history is the history of the Jews. Now, there were some people there who weren't born Jews. They, weren't, they didn't grow up as Jews. But they were what were called proselytes. They were people who wanted to become Jews or who were in the process of potentially becoming Jews. They're also called God-fearers. And so they identified, everyone who was there identified with this history lesson that he gives. They, they called themselves Jews or they were so closely identified with the Jews that they, they felt very connected to this history that he tells. Now all of us here are either Americans or are very closely identified with, American, with the American history by having lived here in Bloomington at the very least living in this nation. And so if you, ex- if you expect to spend any time in this country, if you grew up in this country, if you were born in this country, there is a history that ties us together as well that we care about and also a future for this country that we all care about as well. 
we share a common history just like the people that Paul was preaching to shared a common history. And that common history of the Israelites was a history of not deserving the kindness that God poured out on them. Of not deserving the good things that God gave them. So I want you to think about that as we read our text this morning from Acts 13. Would you please stand for the reading of God's word? Now Paul and his companions put out to sea from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. But John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But going on from Perga, they arrived at Pisidia in Antioch, and on the Sabbath day they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading of the law and the prophets, the synagogue officials sent to them, saying, Brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say it. Paul stood up and, motioning with his hand, said, Men of Israel, and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with an uplifted arm, he led them out from it. For a period of about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. When he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he distributed their land as an inheritance all of which took about 450 years. After these things, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. After he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, concerning whom he also testified and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart who will do all my will. From the descendants of this man, according to promise, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus. After John had proclaimed before his coming a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And while John was completing his course, he kept saying, What do you suppose that I am? I am not he, but behold... One is coming after me, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Brethren, sons of Abraham's family, and those among you who fear God, to us the message of this salvation has been sent. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, recognizing neither him nor the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled these by condemning him. And though they found no ground for putting him to death, they asked Pilate that he be executed. When they had carried out all that was written concerning him, they took him down from the cross and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead, and for many days he appeared to those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, the very ones who are now his witnesses to the people. And we preach to you the good news of the promise made to the fathers, that God has fulfilled this promise to our children, in that he raised up Jesus, as it is also written in the second psalm, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As for the fact that he raised him up from the dead, no longer to return to decay, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. 
Therefore, he also says in another psalm, you will not allow your Holy One to undergo decay. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid among his fathers and underwent decay. Therefore, but he whom God raised did not undergo decay. Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through him forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And through him, everyone who believes is freed from all things, from which you could not be freed through the law of Moses. Therefore, take heed, so that the things spoken of in the prophets may not come upon you. Behold, you scoffers, and marvel and perish. For I am accomplishing a work in your days, a work which you will never believe, though someone should describe it to you. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. The question that I want to ask you this morning is a very simple question, and a lot hinges on it. The question is, do you fear God? Do you fear God? If you do not fear God, you are not a Christian. I don't care how long you've been going to church. I don't care who your parents were. I don't care how much you claim to understand what it means to be a Christian. And I don't care whether you think that you can describe what love is. If you have no fear of God, you are not a Christian. Proverbs speaks of the fear of the Lord over and over again in its description of what wisdom is. In chapter 9, verse 10, it says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So what is this talking about? Thank you very much. The fear of the Lord being the beginning of wisdom is talking about salvation. The wisdom that, you, that is spoken of in Proverbs is the wisdom that leads to salvation. It is the wisdom of God, not the wisdom of man. It's the wisdom of God sending his son to die for the forgiveness of sins. That's the wisdom that Proverbs speaks of. And it says that the beginning of that wisdom is the fear of the Lord. Until you fear God, you have no concept of what that salvation is. Until you fear God, you do not have the wisdom that leads to salvation. Deuteronomy 10, verse 12 says, Now Israel, what does the Lord your God require from you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways and love him, and to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. And so again, we see the greatest commandment, as Jesus describes it, the great commandment is this, you shall love the Lord your God, right? Is preceded by what? Fear him. Fear him. Fearing God leads us ultimately to love. 
But unless you have feared him first, you will have no understanding of why in the world you should love him. Ecclesiastes 8.12 says, Although a sinner does evil a hundred times and may lengthen his life, still I know that it will be well for those who fear God, who fear him openly. Do you openly fear God? Openly. That means unashamedly. Do you fear God at work or do you fear man? Do you fear God at school or do you fear man? Do you fear God at home or do you fear your wife? Who do you fear? Who do you fear openly? Who is it obvious that you fear? If you fear God, if you fear him openly, it will go well with you. John 14, 15 says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And so the fear of the Lord leads to obedience, and it leads to loving God. And loving God also leads to obedience. And so one of the ways that you can tell whether you fear God is if you obey his commandments. There's evaluations that we can use in our lives, just like we use on professors, evaluations. Ask questions. Those questions are meant to get at something. The something that I want you to get at this morning is, do you fear God? And the first evaluation is, are you obedient to his commands? Why would you be obedient if you fear God? The reason is because God is a God of holiness. And so if you have any understanding of who God is, you will see that he has no tolerance of sin and that he demands perfect obedience to his law. And so you will look at that law and you will say, I fear that God, that God who is all-powerful, all-knowing, all-seeing, completely holy. I fear sinning in his presence. And I am always in his presence. And so I will obey his commands. That's how fear leads to obedience. And yet fear cannot lead to obedience without love. And the reason that we love God is because he sent his son to die for the forgiveness of our sins. And so as we see who God truly is and we begin to fear for our lives, fear the pit of hell, fear what our sin will cause in our own lives, in the lives of our wife, in the lives of our children, as we begin to fear those things, Ultimately, that is the fear of God. What we will see is that we really must fear God because it is completely impossible for us to keep his commandments. As hard as we try, we continue to fail. And so then, we have the good news of the gospel. And that's what Paul goes into. He says, Men of Israel and you who fear God, You who fear God, to us, 
the message of this salvation has been proclaimed. The law of Moses and obedience to the law could never accomplish what Christ has accomplished. He died on the cross for the forgiveness of sins. And so our fear of God leads to us loving him. And both of them lead to us being obedient. Paul describes to the Israelites in his history lesson the fact that God put up with them. He put up with them for 40 years in the wilderness. And then he continues to tell the story, and what he says is, and then he gave them judges. That's a good blessing from God. And then they asked for a king. That's them being rebellious. And so he gave them Saul. And it was miserable. And yet then he had mercy and he gave them David. That was a good blessing from God that the Israelites did not deserve. And then they rebelled. See, the history lesson that Paul gives is just like the history lesson if you read through the book of Judges. The book of Judges describes this process over and over and over again. God was gracious. God saved the people of Israel from those who were persecuting them. And then they rebelled. And then God saved them again, and then they rebelled. And then God saved them again, and then they rebelled. And then God saved them again, and then they rebelled. Over and over and over. All through the Old Testament. And the truth is that the history of our nation, the history of the United States of America, is exactly the same as that history. God has poured out blessings on us that we never deserved, and then we have rebelled against him. And he has poured out blessings on us that we did not deserve, and then we rebelled against him. And there have come times where he judged this nation. There have been small judgments that were poured out. But he has not obliterated us like our sins deserve. What is our history? Our history as a nation is the founding by men who feared God. not man, and setting it up in such a way as that it was meant to be following God and continuing to cause men to fear him. In other words, they set up laws. They did not just live in anarchy. Why? Because they feared God. And yet then, What did our nation do? Well, among other things, it gave itself to exploiting the weak and the helpless through slavery. And no matter what you think the cause of the Civil War was here in this nation, it is very clear that it was a judgment from God on this nation. And some of you might say it was because of the northern aggression. And others of you might say, well, it was because of the southern slavery. And I don't care what you think. It was a judgment from God. 
It was God pouring out judgment on this nation. None of the things that happen in a civil war happen without it being judgment from God. Where brother is shooting brother. Where father is shooting son. Where men are fighting against each other and killing each other. It's part of the same nation. That is a judgment from God. And this came after the Great Awakening. The Great Awakening was the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, the gift of God, the precious gift of God, calling thousands and thousands of people to himself, drawing them to repentance. The gifts that God has given this country are huge. And none of them were deserved. Not a one of them has ever been deserved. And we need to understand that in a nation that believes in rights above almost anything else. And our rights are so important to us. And what are our rights? Well, it's our right to be happy, healthy, and wise and live forever. That's what we think. Seriously. And live forever. We really believe that today. And all over the world, people believe that if they could just come to this place, this promised land of America, they would be happy, healthy, wealthy, and live forever. But this is not the promised land. There is nothing special about this nation. There is nothing special about this ground. There is nothing preventing disaster from striking Bloomington like it struck in Japan. Was the disaster in Japan God's judgment? Yes. Sin causes death and destruction to be in this world. Sin causes it. If there was no sin in this world, you would not have that disaster in Japan. And yet there is sin. And therefore, there is death, there is disaster, and it is God's judgment on sin. And yet, does that mean that Japan is somehow worse than us? It means nothing of the sort. And this is why it was so beautiful to read Cole's letter in the IDS a few weeks ago explaining to all of the campus of Indiana University that unless you repent, you likewise shall perish. There's nothing special about right here in Bloomington that prevents disaster from coming upon us. Even the promised land that the Israelites entered into, the people chosen by God, there was nothing special preventing them from undergoing disaster. And they did. As soon as they rebelled against God, He turned his back on them, and they faced disaster.
And so today, we as a nation think that we're entitled to many things. What do you think you're entitled to? What is it that if it got taken away, you would be most angry about? That's what you think you're entitled to. You're not entitled to that. I don't know what it was. If it was your money, if it was your family, if it was your house, if it was your sense of humor. It could have been anything. You're not entitled to that. Any good thing that you have is a gift from God, and you did not deserve it. And our nation does not deserve the good things that God has done for us. We're not somehow special. We're not somehow some new Jerusalem, some new Canaan, some new promised land. America is not the promised land. Our nation is not here on earth. Our hope is not in the present. Our hope is in the future. Our hope is in heaven, the true promised land. And that also is not something that we deserve or that we have a right to. You ask people today whether if they, when they die, they'll go to heaven, they say yes. And you say, why? What they say is, I deserve it. I deserve it. I've always tried to be as good as I possibly can. So, God has to let me in because I deserve it. This is America's entitlement mentality carried into eternity. And it doesn't work any more now than it will then. You see, because an earthquake could destroy this city just as easily as it could destroy the nation of Japan. And so our living as though we have something that's guaranteed is a false way to live. And it shows that we have no fear of God. Because if we had any fear of God, then we would understand that we would recognize that we are living in a dangerous time. Because we are living in a nation that has rejected God. That has given itself to bloodshed. The children sang up here this morning, You knit me together in my mother's womb. And so we rip them out as a nation. That's what we do as a nation today. Through abortion. And what it does that deserve from God? We are not somehow special. There's nothing keeping us from being the same as the seven nations that God removed from the promised land. He waited until when? Until they had filled up the cup of their wickedness and the cup of their punishment. And then he obliterated them. 
And you see, our nation deserves this. We deserve this. God deals with nations. You guys got to see a baptism this morning of a child. And part of that is about the fact that God deals with representatives. And so we have families affected by their fathers. You, fathers, giving yourselves to sin throughout the week affects your family. You see it. You know it. And so we deal with families. God deals with families. He deals with churches. He deals with nations. We don't get to be like, well, I've been good. Let the fire and brimstone fall all around me. I'll just stand here and be unaffected by it. God doesn't work that way. Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed. And the only way that Lot wasn't was by going out. Being separate. And so my my warning to you this morning isn't a warning that, you know, in 2012, the world is coming to an end. My warning to you isn't, you know, in in 2011 through 2013, inflation is going to go up so much that there's going to be shortages of food and you're not going to be able to afford to drive to Indianapolis and back. My warning to you this morning isn't about the fears of little things like that. My warning to you this morning isn't stockpile food. My warning to you this morning is fear God or die. Fear God or face his wrath. It has always been the people of God who try to protect themselves from the conviction of the Holy Spirit through spiritual tricks. And so Paul points that out to the people that he's preaching to. He says, those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers... And remember, Jerusalem was the center of the promised land. It stood for all of the goodness that God had ever done for Israel. And so Paul is outside Jerusalem now. And he's talking about Jerusalem, the center of the promised land. And he says, yeah, those people who lived there, the ones who were God's chosen people, and their rulers, their religious leaders, recognizing neither him nor the utterances of the prophets which are read every Sabbath fulfilled these by condemning him. 
that is Jesus. And so here you are, you're at church. Some of you are at church every week. And some of you have been going to church every week for a long time and have no fear of God. None whatsoever. The warning is, take heed so that the things spoken of in the prophets may not come upon you. Behold, you scoffers, and marvel and perish. For I am accomplishing a work in your days, a work which you will never believe, though someone should describe it to you. And what is that work? That work is God sending his son, Jesus, to die. That work is him fulfilling the prophecies in the Old Testament. And the prophecies are what? He says over and over again, every Sabbath, the words of the prophets are read, and yet they don't know what the words of the prophets said. Now, what are the words of the prophets that you don't want to have come upon you? It's not the words of salvation. It's the words of the judgment that the prophets proclaim on the people of God for their disobedience. That's what you don't want to hear about. That's what you could hear week in, week out, and have it go in one ear and out the other and be happier for it. But in the end, you will not be happier for it. What do the prophets say? Do you have any idea what the prophets actually say? Have you read the Old Testament? Paul is warning us about the words of the prophets coming upon us. Elijah was a prophet. And Elijah challenged the prophets of Baal to a duel. Your God versus mine. And when God sent fire from heaven to consume the sacrifice and to consume the altar, the rocks, and to consume the water that had been poured all over the sacrifice and the rocks, And that had filled the trench. When that fire came down from God's presence. And burned everything up in the presence of all of the people. It was a warning. It was not just an amazing miraculous thing. It was scary you guys. Scary. And they all said. That is the true God. And yet they walked away and continued to live in rebellion. They walked away not fearing God. Do not leave here this morning without fearing God. That fire is what you will face in the end.
unless you repent, you likewise shall perish. Paul's warning is to us. Paul's warning is to us because we are the church. And what he's warning against is thinking that we're somehow above God's wrath. That we're somehow above God's judgment. What he's warning against is hearing the preaching of the word. Hearing the testimony of the prophets. The warnings of the judgment of God. and refusing to live a life of obedience to his commands. That's what he's warning against. So fear him and obey him. And when you fear him, you will learn to love him. But not until then. Let's pray. Father, help us to be hearers of your word and doers. Help us not to go out from here ignoring the warnings of Paul, of Elijah, of all of the prophets that judgment is coming. Help us not to put our hope in this nation in our wealth, in politics, in politicians. Help us instead to put our hope in your Son, who was raised and did not undergo decay, and who will raise us on the last day. If we fear you and obey your commandments, we pray these things in Jesus' name.